Have any of you heard the name Thomas Huxley? Does that ring a bell with anyone? You might have heard of Aldous Huxley, but what about Thomas Huxley? Well, I would guess that very few, clearly very few of us have heard of him, if any, but very few people in general have heard of him these days. And yet the society that you and I live in today is largely the result of hard work that was done by Thomas Huxley and his friends. When I say the society we live in, I mean the thinking and beliefs of our society today, such as the popular idea that science has disproved the Bible and made God irrelevant, and the belief that Christianity is okay in private But it's not okay when it comes to having an influence on our laws and our morals and our education. So who was this Thomas Huxley who's been so influential on our society? He lived in the 1800s, and he had a passionate desire to tear down Christianity and replace it with the kind of science that has no place for God. In Huxley's day, many of the leading scientists were Christians, but he wanted to change that. He was both passionate about a certain kind of science, and he was passionately against God. Huxley seized onto Darwin's theory of evolution, and he and a group of friends set about systematically taking over the scientific institutions in Britain. He and his friends succeeded in taking over the Royal Society. They gained control over who was appointed or elected to various positions in the society, including the presidency. And they managed to take over scientific societies all over Britain. While all that behind-the-scenes work was going on, Thomas Huxley himself became more and more famous as a public voice for science. Huxley's way of looking at the world began to be seen as the intelligent and the true way of looking at the world. He and his friends began to be seen as the experts. Through very hard work, they succeeded in marginalizing the voices and the views of Christian scientists. And Huxley worked very hard also to set the agenda for education in this country. He wrote to a friend that he was giving lectures in biology to school teachers. And he said he was doing that with a view to converting them into scientific missionaries to convert the Christian heathen of these islands to the true faith. And when he spoke about the true faith, Huxley meant atheism. Belief in a godless universe. He managed to present Christianity as a hindrance to progress. And that was in spite of the fact that before Huxley came along, most scientific progress had been achieved by Christians. Thomas Huxley set himself an amazingly ambitious project. He worked tirelessly, and by and large, he succeeded. This is what he wrote finally. 
extinguished theologians lie about the cradle of every science as the strangled snakes beside that of Hercules. Now, according to Greek mythology, as a baby, Hercules was attacked by snakes, but he strangled them with his bare hands. Thomas Huxley believed that his godless science had done the same thing to Christianity. And today, you and I are living with what Huxley and his friends achieved. In many ways, in British society, they have smashed and burned the biblical way of looking at the world. You and I live in the wasteland that they've left behind. We stand among the ruins. Christianity is no longer treated seriously in the scientific world. That's not because science has disproved Christianity. It's because a certain view of the world has taken over science, an atheistic view. And this spills over into every area of life. It affects the value that's placed on human life. Humans are no longer seen as created in God's image and therefore inherently valuable. Now they're just bundles of cells. Once you get to that point, abortion becomes an easy option. Euthanasia sounds reasonable. And sexual orientation is just a quirk of your DNA. It's how you're wired. Whether certain sexual behavior might be wrong, well, that's not even a question anymore. And so the biblical understanding of family holds very little weight today. Family can really mean whatever you want it to mean. Our government is determined to make marriage mean whatever you want it to mean. Our prime minister who says that our society is broken is trying to break it even more. Enemies have brought destruction to our society. And you and I are living among the ruins. I've started out with all this to get us ready for our Bible passage. Because our passage starts among ruins. This evening we're going to look at Psalm 74. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 586. Psalm 74, and I'll read the whole psalm. A mascal of Asaph. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the people you purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance whom you redeemed. Mount Zion, where you dwelt, turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. <clears throat> 
They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no miraculous signs. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But you, O God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, O Lord. How foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant. Because the haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies which rises continually. This is God's word. You'll notice that this psalm is written in the plural. It's written, we're told, by a man called Asaph. But it's not about I, it's about we and us. It's been called a community prayer. This is for God's people to say or sing together. And the psalm opens very abruptly. There are no preliminaries, no building up to the issue. In verse 1, Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Most of us are familiar with Psalm 23. In beautiful language, that psalm describes David's experience of having the Lord as his shepherd, being led by the Lord beside quiet waters, having his soul restored by the Lord, being comforted by the Lord. But here in Psalm 74, the psalmist isn't feeling the restoring and comforting hand of the Lord. He's experiencing the Lord's smoldering anger against his sheep. The psalmist here feels like a sheep who's unprotected, a sheep who's been abandoned by the shepherd. This has been described as a tormented psalm. And the background to it is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. That happened because of Israel's rebellion against God. About 600 years before Jesus was born, the Babylonians came, they flattened the city, and they carried many of the Israelites away into exile. 
and they left behind a wasteland. Not just a physical wasteland, but also a spiritual one. The temple was gone. And Asaph feels like God has gone too. He knows that God was behind the exile. He knows that it was a just punishment for Israel's sin. But he's beginning to feel like God has cut his people off forever. Verses 1 to 11 of this psalm are about life in the wasteland. And the prayer of these verses is, God, remember us. The sense we get in these verses is that God has taken himself off. He's walked out. And Asaph is calling God to look over his shoulder and come back. In verse 2, he says, remember the people you purchased and redeemed. It seems you've forgotten us. Remember Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem. Your presence used to live among us here. You dwelt in the temple and we felt secure. But now you're gone. And in a sense, Asaph is right. The book of Ezekiel described God's departure from the temple. Even before the temple was destroyed, God had left the building. In verse 3, Asaph says, turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. Come back to us. At least come and look at the state we're in. Look at the destruction the enemy has brought. Then in verses 4 to 8, Asaph describes what the Babylonians did. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. The invaders made a very clear statement. They invaded God's sanctuary. And that was a place where God had placed various signs of his presence, such as the Ark of the Covenant. But the invaders replaced those things with their own signs. Probably that means their military banners. And they roared like lions celebrating their victory. They made it clear that they were the new power that ruled the world. And they didn't stop there. The book of 1 Kings gives us a description of the temple when it was first built. It was built by Solomon. We're told the interior of the temple was paneled from floor to ceiling with cedar. And the panels of cedar were covered with carvings of open flowers. It must have taken years of work. And it must have been an incredible sight. It was there to glorify God. But Asaph tells us how the invaders treated it. Verse 5. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They were ferocious. Hacking in all directions. They worked like men who were clearing trees in a forest. But actually they were smashing up God's sanctuary. And when they were done with the smashing, verse 7, they burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. One writer says this is a picture of furious, destructive energy. 
And the goal here was much more than just destroying a building. They wanted to get rid of everything the temple stood for. They wanted to wipe out the worship of Israel's God. And as far as Asaph can see, they pretty much succeeded. Verse 8. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no miraculous signs. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. Verse 9 in the original simply begins, we are given no signs. There's no indication that God is at work here. And that includes lack of any word from God. There are no prophets. Never mind the miraculous, Asaph says, we're not getting anything. We hear plenty of jeers and roars from our enemies, but nothing from God. Verse 10, How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. God, remember us. We live in a wasteland. Won't you do something? If you won't destroy our enemies, at least come and look. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. As you and I look around us today, we may often feel like we live in a wasteland. Not in material terms, but spiritually. It seems God has been torn down. God's enemies roar about their own power. God's laws seem to have been smashed to pieces. The biblical view of the world seems to have been burnt to the ground. Yes, in one sense, our situation is different from Asaph's, but not too different. The New Testament calls us aliens and strangers in this world. The moment we try to speak up for Jesus, often we feel like we're living in exile in a foreign land. Asaph's prayer is for us too. God, remember us. Won't you do something? Asaph stood and he looked around at the ruins. But then he looked up from the ruins. He fixed his attention on his creator and saviour. In verses 12 to 17, the prayer is, we remember your power. And Asaph remembers God's power by looking back to two events where God demonstrated his power. He starts out talking about the exodus from Egypt, and he ends up talking about the creation of the world. In verse 12, Asaph makes it clear that God might seem to be absent, But, he says, you, O God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. The book of Exodus records how God's people were slaves in Egypt. But under Moses' leadership, God led his people out of Egypt. They ended up trapped between the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army charging from behind them. But God opened up a path through the sea. You know the story. The Israelites crossed safely, but when the Egyptian army tried to follow, they were drowned. 
Asaph describes it in verse 13. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. In the book of Ezekiel, Pharaoh is called a monster in the seas. And Asaph is using the same picture here. In his day, Pharaoh was a frightening enemy. He seemed to hold all the cards in his hand. But God crushed him and his army. And God brought salvation for God's people. Then at this point, it seems Asaph begins to talk about creation. God's victory over Pharaoh sparks off thoughts about another victory. Verse 14, it was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. We might wonder what that has to do with creation. And who is Leviathan? Well, the nations around Israel saw the sea as symbolic of chaos. It was a wild power, almost like a living monster. And they called it Leviathan, a monster with seven heads. And here Asaph takes that popular picture and he says, let's talk about the one who can subdue that wild power. As the creator of this world, God is the master of any chaos in this world. The Babylonians may have come and subdued Israel, but this world and its powers are really in subjection to my God. Verse 15, it was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. As he stands in the midst of the ruins of Jerusalem, Asaph looks up. And he reminds himself that his God is king from of old. Someone has said Asaph is looking beyond the immediate problem to the total scene which God coordinates in wisdom. Even the smashing and burning of the temple was somehow part of the total scene which God coordinates in wisdom. The God who made both summer and winter coordinates the times of blessing and the times of trial for his people. God does not carry out evil, but evil is still within his wise control. And if we apply this to our situation, there are certainly times for us to work at rebuilding the ruins of our society. But when we come together as God's people, it's time to look up above the ruins. Together, we need to look up to our God who is creator and savior. We need to remind ourselves that ultimately, he is the master of the chaos we see around us. And together we can pray, we remember your power. We know you haven't lost your power. The rivers you created are still flowing. You still cause day to follow night. You still bring summer and winter. And you're still able to crush the head of any power that comes against you. 
Asaph could look back to God's victories at creation and the Exodus. Those were the two dominant displays of God's power in the Old Testament. But you and I can look back to another great victory. The New Testament tells us of the victory that was won at the cross. Colossians says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that's God, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And for God's people, here is the result of that victory. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. You and I live among ruins, but we know that our God has already won the victory over every other power and authority. But it's also true that we don't yet see the reality of that victory around us. What about the enemies who still smash and burn and roar as if they're God? We can sense and know God's victory in our own lives, but what about the ruins all around us? Well, Asaph hasn't forgotten those enemies who are roaring. And in verses 18 to 23, he prays to the God of the covenant. And his prayer is, remember your honor. Verse 18, remember how the enemy has mocked you, O Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Again, Asaph's prayer is, remember. But whereas he started the psalm by saying, remember us, now his prayer is, remember your own honor. God's honor is bound up with his good name. And as far as Asaph can see, God's good name is being dragged through the dirt. Why? Because the world knows that Israel is his people. Israel is his dove, verse 19. And it seems like God has abandoned his dove to the wild beasts. So for the sake of God's own name, Asaph calls on him to act. And it's important to see this is not some loose connection that God has with his people. In verse 20, Asaph points to God's covenant with his people. God has bound himself to his people. After he brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And it was a covenant sealed with blood. It promised that out of all the nations, Israel would be God's treasured possession. 
And for Asaph, that covenant is like a firm foothold among the ruins. Now, there's no doubt Israel has been unfaithful to God. They have broken the covenant. But Asaph says to God, have regard for your covenant. For the sake of your own name, come and deliver your people. Matthew Henry puts it like this. Lord, though we are unworthy to be respected, yet have respect to the covenant, to your promise. Verse 21. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies which rises continually. The main motivation here is God's reputation. Asaph talks about your name, your cause, your adversaries, your enemies. Asaph has moved on since the psalm started. Then it was, remember us, O God. Now it's, never mind about us, rise up and act for the sake of your own reputation. That's a good place to get to. Asaph is still asking God to do the same thing. To come back to the ruins and establish his reign. But now Asaph's motivation has developed. He wants God to do it for his own honor. And only secondarily for the good of his people. Our prayers for our own situation need to be along the same lines. When we pray for God to rise up in our land, our primary motivation should not be an easier life for ourselves. Our primary motivation must be God's honor. Verse 74, Psalm 74 started very abruptly and it ends just as abruptly. There's no closure. There's no record of any reply from God. Asaph has prayed and now he has to wait. He has to wait holding on to what he knows about God's saving power, God's faithful character. And God's covenant promises. We noticed earlier that this is a community prayer. Asaph wrote it, but it's written in the plural. And as God's people said or sang this year after year, they had to keep holding on to what they knew about God's power, his character, and his promises. You and I are in a very similar situation. Spiritually, our society is in ruins. But we know that our God is the creator and the savior. He's shown his saving power, not just at the exodus, but in an even greater way at the cross. And we have his new covenant promise to hold on to. We celebrated that new covenant this morning, the Lord's Supper. Shortly before Jesus died, he shared a Passover meal with his disciples. You may remember the Passover was a commemoration of God's salvation at the Exodus. But at that meal, 
commemorating God's past salvation, Jesus held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That night, Jesus transformed a meal celebrating the past into a promise about the future. God would bring an even greater salvation than the exodus from Egypt. And just a few hours later, Jesus sealed that new covenant by dying on the cross. A cup of wine is a symbol of that blood that sealed the covenant. What does that new covenant mean for us today? It means that God has staked his honor on saving those who trust in Jesus' death. One day Jesus will return to this earth as the all-conquering king. All his enemies will be finally crushed. His people will live under his reign in the new heaven and earth. That's why 1 Corinthians tells us we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus' death and the meal that commemorates his death are God's promise to us. The ruins that we see around us are not everlasting ruins. God's name will not be mocked forever. God's people will not live in the wasteland forever. We have God's promise of a future day when he will show his new creating saving power. Not just in individual lives, but throughout the whole world. One day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's God's new covenant promise through the prophet Habakkuk. The Psalms connect with us where we are, but they don't leave us where we are. They move us forward always. Psalm 74 meets us as people living among spiritual ruins. But then it reminds us of God's power. It points us to God's covenant promises. So let's close by reminding ourselves of his promises. First of all, we'll sing, O Lord, the clouds are gathering. And then, rejoicing in hope, we wait for our King.